If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to Beautiful Humans, the social change cast, where behavior analysis and social justice collide. Join us as we aim to move the needle on personal and social change by tapping into the beautiful humans inside of all of us. Follow us on Spotify, Apple, or whatever medium you prefer to make sure you never miss an episode. You can find us on Instagram at Beautiful Humans Change and on Facebook at Beautiful Humans, the social change cast. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Beautiful Humans Social Change Cast. Um, I'm Erin. And I'm Denisha. All right. So this episode, we are going to get a little personal, but it's going to be extremely relevant. We want to spend today talking uh, about consequences of oppression. And so there have been some things in both of our lives that have happened recently that we kind of went off the flew off the um, off the handle and decided to do a, a spontaneous episode uh, on the consequences of op- oppression so um, so Denisha like why, why don't you start us off and, and talk a little bit maybe some things that are going on with you recently and why you feel this is a, a much needed topic of conversation right now yeah um, all right so I think for me um, a lot of thoughts have been coming up for me as I continue on this journey. For a little back story, for those who are not aware, recently I've been doing um, workshops and webinars in the field, trying to fuse social justice and ABA together. And my background, I've been doing workshops and teaching about the systems of oppression for about 12 years now. So it's something that's not new to me. Um, It's something that, of course, I've always had a passion for, but I've always enjoyed it. Um, always enjoyed being able to provide information to people who have then decided to commit to being better people for others that inhabit this earth with us. And um, But something has been feeling really different about the work that I've been doing lately. And I have been struggling through presenting. I've been struggling through preparing for the work. And I'm recognizing that this is just very different from what I'm used to. And um, some conversations that I'm having with myself is like, what happens when you start internalizing messaging? Um, What happens when a new context is created? And now this feels different for me because it's tied to my professional work as opposed to being, you know, a passion project. But for me, I I feel like I've been anticipating responses based on a past learning history, um, whether direct or indirect, but dealing with people and what happens when you approach conversations that that are new and essentially, hopefully, causes a paradigm shift. But um, there might be some pushback or... um, 
frustration or denial. And so um, I've been having to deal with feelings of like getting ready for that. And I think I'm just anticipating to the point of like, it's, it's debilitated me a little bit, I think, in these past couple of weeks, or especially after this past weekend. Um, so yeah, I think that that felt important for me to, to talk about and have the space to put it all out there before we get knee deep in this journey. Like I've committed to it. Um, you know, I've, I've done this for so long, but I have never done it in the context of behavior analysis. So this is new to me and I want to continue to do it. But if I'm going to continue to do it, I need to be honest about why this is feeling different for me, honest about the things that are essentially scaring me in this process um, and giving me pause to keep going. So that's why, yeah, that's why I'm here. <laughs> Some pretty heavy stuff. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's funny. You said, um, be honest a lot of times right there. And, uh, and I told you right before the show that uh, my partner had told me that I was prepping and kind of amping myself up and, you know, it's nerve wracking to be vulnerable and to be open. And so I actually have a sticky note that says, be honest, mm. like right in front of me as a, as a reminder that um, sometimes the best way to help people hear you is to be honest, um, you know, with yourself and then to express that uh, in a kind and compassionate way, you know, but yeah. with a lot of passion. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but those sound like some heavy things. And I think you're right. Like a, addressing a lot of these things now before we're knee deep for a waist deep, you know? Mm -hmm. um, because for me, a lot of these things uh, drove this project. So, um, but yeah, so for me this week, um, you know, it's, it's interesting being kind of in this new, you talk about new contexts. Um, I don't know. I've tried to figure out over the past couple hours how to how to talk about some of these things, and there are times in uh, my life that you you know we talk about identity and how we identify, and um, you know if that does not agree with some people, then they tend to uh, state their opinions or they state their opinions as the truth and as evidence, and that essentially disregards your identity. So for me specifically, when you're looking at like gender, um, and I'm, you know, attempting to educate people and there's, uh, you know, you know, we talk about gender as being a social construct, different than your physical sex that you were born with. And there, I mean, it's very convoluted. There's a lot that goes into that, but essentially that we can self-select our identity um, in terms of gender in whatever manner that we choose that aligns with us internally, with aligns with our expression, with, a, you know, that, that can create this, um, sense of, uh, authenticity that we feel that we then want others to know. And so when people outwardly state, uh, that essentially their opinion is different than my identity, they're disregarding my identity as a whole, and they're disregarding me as a person, um, and then to to use that essentially stating, I don't know if you've experienced this, where people say, um, I'm liberal, but da, 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 whatever, you know, they go to say, um, but essentially using their liberal identity as, um, you know, a platform that that makes their truth or their opinions okay, 
and because I'm liberal, I can state this, you know, um, you know, and, and so what then happens, especially when those opinions, uh, that disregard your identity, um, they, they happen in a space that you have designed to be safe for yourself and it infiltrates it with violence, you know, and it, it really wears you down. Um, especially when it, their behavior almost seems like a disregard for the feelings and, um, you know, the well-being of humanity in a sense. And I'm not saying that's their intention, but that was the result. Like that's what happens. And to not take their behavior and to, to see that as an issue, um, you know, can, it hurts and it harms and it breaks you down to your very core. And so, um, I think I was saying too, I was like, if you can, for me, if you can state your opinion in a, in a way and then walk away from a conversation completely unscathed, unharmed and leave somebody else crushed, that is a, a you know, a huge source of privilege that you have. Um, and you're using that and you're using that power, um, in a way that's harmful and it's violence essentially. And we're going to define what violence and oppression is. I mean, may maybe now is the perfect time to, to get into that. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, before we do that, like I was listening to what you were saying and the comment about like, I'm liberal, but I can say this. I, for some reason, my mind just took me to like the limit, the limitations of like allyship for like, and thinking like, you know, I'm okay with you being something like, but there's this limit here of like how far we'll take it. Um, and I don't know if that's like a direct relationship, but it just kind of reminded me of that, like, uh, as a liberal, like, I recognize all of these things, but this is the extent of my mind, like, this is as far as I'll take it. Um, and then what you end up doing is, furthering like the feelings of oppression, furthering, like you said, the harm that's done for that individual. Um, and I didn't know exactly what happened or, you know, the story that um, happened over the past weekend, but I was telling my father, I was talking to him about it and I used the word violence to describe it. And just knowing the primer of like the initial and my dad said violence. And I was like, yeah, like violence is not all physical, like violence. And I think a lot of people get that misconstrued. Um, violence is a little bit more than that. And um, I'll go ahead and define it. And then I'll, you know, I can tell you a little backstory about what I said to my dad, but violence is defined by the World Health Organization as the intentional use of physical force or power threatened or actual against oneself, another person, or against a group or a community that either results in or has a high likelihood of resulting in injury, death, psychological harm, maldevelopment, or deprivation. And so there's two words there, a couple, but two words that I want to like hone in on, power. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about systems of oppression. Power is the thing that allows privilege, like if you have privilege, you have power, social power. And so that's necessary to, to point out. And then the psychological harm. So you didn't physically attack anyone, but you harmed them psychologically, mentally. Like you said, 
if you're able to leave a conversation and go on your, you know, uh, uh, on with your day and the other person that's left there to deal with the pieces, to deal with the sadness, the anger, the frustration, try or even left to deal with like the, who am I to the world questions? Like that's harm. That's violence. That is violence. And we should not take that lightly. Yeah. And I think that's a, a powerful word uh, that that we, we should continue to use in that context. Because when I hear the word violence, it it sits with me. It, it hurts it. Um, I have almost a visceral reaction sometimes when I think about that word. And so, and that same reaction started to come up as I was typing our show notes. And I was like, violence, like that's, I've heard you use that in this context. We've talked about situations that um, that I've experienced or you've experienced that did not involve, you know, physical aggression, but you define that as violence and an act of violence. And I think that psychological harm, because those, I was hoping that was the word you were going to pick out, you know, and then even that, um, the threatened part too, you know, it mm -hmm. stood out to me when you, when you read that definition, um, is, is a huge part of that as well. Like it doesn't actually have to happen, but you are threat. And so, for me in my mind, it's like what has happened is that safe space now um, holds a threat that that violence still can exist, still may exist. And so, you know, like I, the, the immediate fallout of dealing with, um, you know, acts of violence and acts of oppression, uh, you know, were, were super intense to, to the most degree I think I've ever experienced. Um, and then I kind of got this motivation back and I got really passionate about something. And then that kind of dissipated the next day. And it was like, it all kind of sank back in, in a different sense. And I think it was realizing that, um, that now there's this association and hopefully that will, that will dissipate over time. But, um, but it's that association because now it's a threat, mm -hmm. you know, those people still are there. Some of them, um, you know, and, uh, or it's the threat that there could be, you know? So I think it's really important that we continue to use that word violence. Um, I think about like coercive control and things like that, that don't involve, you know, physical acts of aggression or, um, harm, but that do cause psychological harm, you know? Yeah. And, I mean, I know tonight we're talking about the consequences. Um, and so I don't want to really jump the gun, but when these types of things happen, these acts of violence, that now goes into your learning history, like your history bank. And so for you to have to come back to that space or to things that remind you of this mm -hmm. specific space, to now have to be met with remembering those situa that situation. And once again, just going back to this is the privilege that these people or this person had of interjecting their opinion over you. And, and so that really, you know, it frustrates me. I was telling you, Aaron, before the show that with my activism work, I'm rooted in Kenyan nonviolence. And that is the philosophy of Dr. King. And, um, being with a social justice group that really, <laughs> you know, continues to push that methodology forward, it just says that we are 
fighting against the systems of evil, not the people doing evil. And so because of like who I am, that has always been like hard for me because I want to like hold you accountable, like the person that did it. But um, I guess you can say that's like the myopic view. Um, but I guess with Kenny and nonviolence, it allows me to see the bigger picture that that one person, what they did, or these few people, what they did, it still hurts. It does not take away any of that. Um, they are one part of the larger picture. They are one part of the larger issue. And for me, when thinking about that or when these things happen, it kind of gives me my like, and so why do we keep doing this? Because this larger issue is still present. And so, um, yeah. You know, having to move past that anger and the frustration, but yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm really, you know, I'm really sad um, and sorry that these things continue to happen. Um, and I try not to be like the pessimistic side of me, like, unfortunately, <laughs> they're going to continue to happen. But like the other side of me is like, and then that's why you show up and you, you have to show up. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. And it's and it's finding your people that you know that you can go to, you know, mm. that that are there regardless um, and that will stand up for you when you can't, I think. And we talk about accomplice behavior. And so I'm very lucky to have several of those, um, you know, that understand and that um, that I can reach out to. We call it tagging in is like, you know, when I can't. I'm going to be like, you know, and, and on social media too, like I just have to tag that person and they just, they jump in, you know, um, I, somebody, and I'll have to ask you about this. Maybe I can ask you after the show, but, um, as far as like tagging in, um, you know, us not having to carry for our specific identities, the burden of that, uh, change all by ourselves. So building that support group and, and being able to lean on people, um, I think is, is really key, um, you know, so, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't, yeah, let's, let's define oppression real fast before okay. we jump into consequences. Cause I'm excited to get into that part. All right. Sure. Um, so I'm just going to reiterate the definition. If you have not listened to our reference show, it's there. I've already stated, um, it before, but the combination of prejudice and institutional power, which creates a system that discriminates against some groups, we often call them target groups, marginalized groups, um, and it benefits other groups, often referred to as the dominant identity group or the privileged group. Examples of these systems include racism, sexism, heterosexism, ableism, classism, ageism, anti-Semiticism, genderism. These systems enable dominant groups to exert control over target groups by limiting their right by limiting their rights, their freedom, and access to basic resources such as healthcare, education, employment, and housing. Um, I also went over the four levels though to to understand that it's not just about um, policies. It also is about the personal, so the values and the beliefs and the feelings that we hold towards other groups of people, um, the interpersonal, the actions and the behaviors that we engage in, institutional, so that those are the rules and the policies and procedures that we set forth, and then cultural level, which um, is more so about like what we dictate as beauty or what we consider the truth or right. And so... In our field, we might consider the truth to be what is evidence-based. Um, and culturally, 
for folks, what they might consider the truth or right is the extent of their own learning history. Um, and so that is how oppression can show up. We, um, we did define it um, as a verse of control procedures utilized against individuals belonging to at least one particular identity group that falls outside of those dominant identity groups. Um, we also said that it could include limiting availability or controlling access to reinforcers. That's a large part of oppression. That's the system part um, that we'll get into. But one thing I think when dealing with oppression, I, I said it before on the show, it's important to center the voices of those who quote unquote fall outside of those dominant identity groups. Um, I don't know if we do that enough but definitely with this show, it's necessary for us to hear from the folks that we say we want to hear from and that we care about. Um, but tonight, I think it'll be good to talk about, like, what happens? Like, what are the consequences of oppression? Like, that personal feeling or the personal um, responses after being met with some of these things that I, I just or just went over Um on the personal or interpersonal, institutional or cultural level. And so what happens to to the other person, the listener? Yeah, I, it's interesting. I think a lot of those consequences go unnoticed by people, you know, because uh, personally speaking, I tend to hide that from a lot of people or they just don't understand, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so, uh, so again, this is this is a super personal show that we're so we're going to talk about a lot of examples that have shown up um, in our lives, and I think I, I might want to like stop right here and kind of reiterate at least one of the fears that I have uh, is my words and um, you know my perceptions on how things happen or the language that I use being criticized and then being used against me in further acts of oppression, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I think I would encourage people to just try to see past maybe some of the language that we're using, um, just to know that we're being very vulnerable and open and you're getting a inside personal experience, you know, to some of these things that um, a lot of people don't, you might not get the opportunity to see otherwise uh, because that is a value at least of mine and I think of our show is, and in order to do that, we're going to have to be vulnerable. So, um, you know, it's, it's more about somebody's experience rather than maybe the language that they're using. Can I say something about that too, be yeah. before we uh, move on? Um, I think that is how, I think that's something that we as analysts have to remember. Um, like when, when we can only listen to people when they use a certain language that we expect for them to, that's a bit of tone policing. Like you are, ex you're expecting me to give this to you in a way that's palatable enough um, for you to understand. Yet we're still speaking a language that you could like you're, it's a decision and it's a privilege that you're choosing to evoke over another person. And so when, when I speak, I'm thinking about, those who are not in this field, <laughs> but they're still talking about these real experiences. 
we are behavior analysts, but we are human. And so the things that we're talking about might be reflective of other things that some of our clients are also going through. Some of our colleagues are also going through and they're not putting that in a behavior analytic terms. And so if that's the only way that we're going to hear one another is if you nicely package it, then we've already started to lose sight of what the purpose of all this is, you know? And so I just wanted to say that a little bit. I probably will continue to say that. (laughs) No, it's something that needs to be reiterated. Like if I use the incorrect form of the term reinforcer or reinforcement or something like that, just, Mm -hmm. you know, like don't don't get so hung up on that. Can we look at the larger picture? Like infer what I'm trying to say, you know, our, our science is so heavy in a language that a lot of people don't understand. And one of the values of our show is extending beyond behavior analysis. And mm-hmm. so in order to do that, we need to use language that is digestible <laughs> to other people and, uh, and to other fields and general population, I think. So, um, but it's, it, I think my fear is like, it, is that being somebody picking out something that I say maybe out of context and using that to discredit me or to disregard what I'm saying as a whole. And so, um, you know, I talk a lot about cultural humility and the, the process of coming to a conversation to learn about somebody else's experience. And if you were there to criticize uh, and to pick apart and debate, then I'm not really interested in, you're not interested in learning. And I'm not interested in expending my energy into that any further. You know, so that's one thing I wrote down. I was like, there's listening to respond versus listening to learn. And so what, what are you doing right now? and being mindful of your behavior in that moment and what is your value, you know? So that's a preface for everything that's about ready to come. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so let's get into, let's get into what the research says about the impact or consequences of oppression. Okay. Um, Okay. So, I, these are just a few examples. I think that there are probably other folks who have studied this um, more intensely and have created a longer list, but these are just some examples that were um, outlined um, by, let's see, by David E.R. in um, 2009. So this research basically stated that impacts of oppression are the belief of inferiority, um, isolation, guilt, self-blame, and performance anxiety. Um, And so when I was reading this research, for me personally, I was like, oh, (laughs) you know, I felt or, you know, have ebb ebb and flows of all of these things. Um, I think about the performance anxiety specifically for me and, and what I mentioned earlier, that's what I've been going through, like anxiety about presenting um, or putting out this information. And I think it also has to do with just the nature of our field, being people that are philosophic doubt is great. Like, obviously, that's what we believe in. Um, but wondering what happens when that philosophical doubt is backed in bias already. And so you have people that are in our field that are extremely intellectual, 
extremely smart. And that's not to downplay my own intelligence or intellect, but there are people who will use the nicely defined words to reinforce their own status, their own social status and the status quo. And I don't know if I'm ready for that. And I think anytime that it's time for me to speak, I start thinking about what happens when I meet that person. And um, this past weekend, because I had such a whirlwind weekend of emotions and I'm so, I don't want to do this anymore. (laughs) Um, Because of that, I just remembered like, I learned this lesson already outside of this work. I have to take care of myself. And there are going to be some conversations that I simply will not engage in and just will have to say, and that is okay. And (laughs) you can have this well put, you know, definition of why, you know, racism doesn't make sense to you or heterosexism isn't real or whatever it is. And I'm just going to say, you can have it. You can have it. Um, And so I think that's something that I need to do to protect myself, but recognizing that that is a, that is a, an impact that I've been dealing with lately. Um, Yeah. No, it's like what I just said. My energy is um, limited. You know, we all, (laughs) we all have so much energy. There's only so many minutes in a day. Um, And I really like the way you just said it is like, okay, that's, that's okay. And just turn around and walk the other way. It's, it's choosing to have conversations with people uh, who may have the same perspectives as that person that you just walked away from, but they're willing to listen to learn. And so it's, where do you expend that energy? Um, And then being a model for that too, but it's so hard when then some of those other things that you just lifted, listed off show up too. You know, it's so complex into to what this happens. Um, you you mentioned performance anxiety. Uh, the two that showed up for me were isolation and guilt and self-blame. And so here was probably one of the most prominent thoughts that showed up for me, that still show up for me um, multiple times a day regarding this incident that happened last week. Um, you know, the day after I, like, A, I shut down. Um, I don't know if anybody heard from me, maybe a couple people. Um, I jumped off social media like I was gone, like I bailed. Um, I couldn't be in that safe space anymore. Um, it hurt. Uh, even though there were people like rallying around and it felt good, but it was still like that. Um, that's what I needed to do to take care of myself in that moment. And, um, and then set in this self-blame and this guilt. And it was like, was I being really sensitive? Like maybe I was like, that's, that's exactly what started to happen. I was like, was it that bad? What that person said? Like, I don't, maybe like, it's just their opinion. Like I should, I should be able to let that bounce off of me and fall back and it not matter. Like that person doesn't really matter to me. Um, why? And then it started like, why does it bother me that bad? And, and so I had to like dig in and you do like, that's the isolation part too, is then you start get stuck in the, in your head and have, um, you know, these, uh, I call it spiraling. It's like where your thoughts start to spiral and sometimes they become irrational or logical or you just start to question yourself. And, um, so 
but that's those are the two and then inferiority you know is is just um i mean that one didn't stand out to me as much but definitely you're like i'm i'm one person and even the people that are supporting me they they don't understand you know i appreciate them without a doubt but um and then the impacts that go beyond that where it's like <laughs> i think for most people there's like a threshold of how long things should bother you for and once they've reached like that, you know, you can't, you have to pretend like it doesn't bother you anymore, you know? Mm. And so, um, and whether I'm perceiving that or not, but it's like, okay, like, I feel like I should be good now, but I'm not, but I feel like the rest of the world is ready for me to be good. So I have to go on kind of putting on this false face in a sense and, and being inauthentic is like, it hurts. Like I can't, I can't do it. And so then that's where the isolation then comes back. It's a vicious cycle. It's a vicious cycle. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're right. It's, it's something that folks who fall outside of the identities um, or the specific identity that we might be addressing, you could empathize with that person, but you're not going to understand that experience. That is, it's, it lands differently for, for you than it would the other person and it impacts them differently. And at the end of the day, no matter how much sadness that I could feel for my um, fellow humans when they go through their things, I don't know exactly what that feels like because I have not personally experienced it. And, um, but the part you said about like having to just show up anyway and move on because you think that other people are expecting you to, like that resonates, that resonates so loud for me. Um, and thinking about like, how do we create space for, for people so that that isn't for like space for you not to be okay, whether it is a month later a year later, I'm still thinking about this thing that happened to me because I can give you countless of examples of things that still bring me right back to that moment years later. So why would I expect you to be okay like, and show that you're okay? Um, and, and I think that also is that, like you said, like it's the impact of like even feeling like you have to be because other people are not going to um, be okay with you still like having feelings of this particular moment in time. Um, yeah. And I don't know like what, what to say, like, like how do we show up in those instances? Instances. Um, are they through check-ins? Are they through, you know, I know I, I feel like one part is like when, when people are having, you know, problems just in like their own lives. I feel like sometimes people don't want to rehash for them or like bring them back to that moment. So they avoid it. And they're like, I'm hope I'm hoping you're okay. But like, if you need me, let me know. Like, you know, people say that when you're going through things, like if you, I'm here for you. Mm -hmm. If you need me, just let me know. And that's like giving you space to, to say like, I'm here. But then at the same time, it's kind of like, are they really going to tell me if they're not okay? Like, how do I handle right. that? Right. Yeah. I know it's, there's such conflict when it comes to that. Um, you know, and, and for me, like this past week, like I was in a place 
where I like ghosted people for, for days. And then I came back around and I was like, thank you for sending this. You know, I, I really appreciate it. Um, but sometimes some of those things do feel overwhelming to talk about it over and over and over again. But the amount of support does for me at least help. But I think it's like, it's asking permission, like, Hey, what do you, what do you need? You know, what do you, what do you need me to do? Um, if, if you're true, if, if you're genuinely interested in being a, you know, a person for that individual to lean on, um, it requires putting yourself out there and asking, I think for me, at least, um, like I get where it's like the, I've done it. I think we've all done it is the, is the, it's the touching ads kind of like patting somebody's shoulder. It's like, I'm here for you. Like you said, <laughs> let me know if you need anything. Um, and it's with good intention. I think that's it. It's, it's yeah. all, and I assume positive intention for sure to a fault at times, you know, where I'll get myself sucked into a conversation and then realize that their intentions are not positive. And now I'm in a position where I shouldn't be. So, mm. um, I think all of that, but as far as the support that goes into that, I, I don't know. Sometimes it's what happens after all of that or, um, like I said, being able to tag somebody in and have them go speak. Like we said, we don't you don't speak for them, right? There's permission. There's things, at least in my life, that I've set up where I have people and I'm like, hey, um, if I tag you and I say, hey, can you address this? That's your cue to go do this. There's a group out there too. This is what I was going to ask you earlier. I don't remember the name of it. I can't remember. But essentially, if you get stuck in like a social media, from my understanding, if you get stuck in a social media, you can tag this group and there's like volunteers. That, do you know what it is? Yes. I don't know the name, but I know exactly what group you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, what are your we thoughts We should find on that? that name and put it in the show notes. Okay. Um, I, I think that, yeah. Um, so for me, I remember when I was in college and I was taking a sociology class. And that professor said, if you ever want a reminder about how the world really is, go look on YouTube and look at the comments. Go look at the, go look at YouTube for any topic. Um, and we were specifically talking about race this day, but specifically go and look on YouTube about anything that has to do with black people and look at the comments. And I went and I looked and I shut myself in my dorm room for hours crying, yeah. bawling. Because I was experiencing things on my campus. And you try to believe that this is just this, like this is just this context. And then, but it was this teacher that gave me this awareness that no, this is larger than this. Like it's it's not just here. And um, so that the stuff that happens online and like what that can do to you. Um I think I think it's great for a group to say, don't feel the need to fight to be recognized or to have your existence understood. We got you. We'll do that for you. Um, for me personally, I stay out of the comment section now. I think for mm -hmm. a little while I used to. Um <clears throat> I'm not I'm not gonna win the world in the comment section. I don't think so. No. And what I've learned about the comment section is people are not there to learn. No. <laughs> Bye. Like that's where I'm not like expending energy. I have no desire to do that. Mm -hmm. 
Not in, like not with those specific conversations. I don't think like I don't think people are there to learn. And if they are, they their phrasing of their questions will alert you if they're being genuine or not. Mm -hmm. um, but the ones who are saying some really hateful stuff online, I don't I can't I, I don't even want to look at it. Like I know if it's a certain headline, I'm not looking at the comment section. It's just not going to happen because that is going to take a, a toll on me for that day or that for the next day or however long it takes. And um, I, I personally don't want to have to expend that energy. Something I was saying this weekend to um, a woman that um, led the conference that I presented at, we were talking about showing up for people and just being in touch with what people, other people are going through related to their social identities. So what I said to her was, and this goes back to what we were just talking about, about just asking, like, is there anything that I can do for you? Like, just checking in, how are you doing? Like, sometimes that means the world because I can't tell you how many times that I've had to sit through a shooting of someone in my community, a police shooting, or had to sit through some type of community issue and then turned around I had to turn around and go to work and nobody said mm -hmm. anything no one's checking on me yeah but I was in tears walking into this space but I just had to put on a happy face and I said it in the context of what's happening right now and what's going to happen I think September 8th is the day where folks are going to start arguing if the LGBTQ population has a right to be just fired from their work. I said, can you imagine working with somebody or being somebody from the population and they're arguing that in the Supreme Court and you have to go to work and you're wondering, is, is my job going to take, if they decide to move along with this, is my job going to take that position and just fire me? And then nobody notices that part about your existence. Nobody notices that you just might be going through something specifically on that day related to this social identity. How powerful is just a check-in to acknowledge that I see you. I see that this might be important for you. And I'm here for you. And let me know what you need. And I think just allowing ourselves to be aware of that, if nothing else, just be aware so yeah, yeah. Um, back to what you asked. I just went on a tangent, but back no. to what you asked. No, well, real, real fast, because this is kind of related, but it's um, because there are like those bigger things where, yes, like I can imagine that or, uh, you know, jumping on Twitter a couple years ago and, um, you know, being potentially a transgender individual in the military and learning that, oh, crap, I'm no longer allowed to be here. And I found out via Twitter, you know, um, to to see how that could and Twitter has no like legitimate legal power. So it's like, is this real? Is this not? And just have your life kind of be in jeopardy for a moment um, when it already is. And I think that's what I wanted to say was like and I know, you know, you, you've talked about experiences, too. It's like the the stress that as you know, in a, a minority that you experience chronically it, you know starts to add up mm -hmm. and so like those check-ins are powerful just um you know just for that reason too is like 
I said I was going to take data on it one day just to see how many times a day I'm misgendered, whether it's intentionally or unintentionally or, you know, people that I've told. I was like, it'd be interesting to do just by strangers, which would be 100% of opportunities. Mm -hmm. Um, But then, um, you know, with uh, people that do know but haven't developed that skill yet or haven't taken the time to develop that skill or um, or then places where I feel fully affirmed, you know, just to see like how that's different, um, you know, or there's, I'm sure you could come up with behaviors that you could measure of what that, what that looks like mm-hmm. um, just to quantify for people a little bit, the level of stress psychologically that goes into that, you know? Yeah. Check-in. So, hmm. and being okay if you are the person that does the check-in, if that person isn't, as responsive as you would want them to be. Don't have an expectation. Yes. Right. What's the function, right, of you checking in? Is it mm-hmm. to make is yourself that... feel better? Mm-hmm. Or is it to actually, you know, see if they're okay? And, and or for them to, to know that you at least see them and want them to be okay. But um, yeah, that's a good, that's a good point, Erin. Um, yeah, I th- I'm thinking about like other things, other impacts um, that oppression has had on me and um, definitely like feeling dismissed. I think um, feeling like experiences based on my specific identities, whether it be my black identity, my woman identity or whatever other identity. Um, but those two are very um, salient for me as I've continued to discuss, but um feeling like those experiences aren't important enough. And so I'll give an example. I applied, um, or I was in the process of applying for my PhD program. This was uh, last year. I actually was accepted to a school I was supposed to start in 2018, but decided not to. But this is not the school that I'm about to discuss. Um, While I was in the process of looking for schools, I had a conversation with um, someone who was my, um, someone I knew, I'll say, (laughs) and um he was he's very um important I would I would say so in the field but um I took this idea to to him that I wanted to work on social justice and ABA and criminal justice reform and all this you know stuff that really means the world to me and he says if that paper ever came across my desk I wouldn't even pick it up. Oh my gosh. And wow. I was, it's like that moment of just like feeling like you're, what matters to you is dismissed, but your existence is dismissed. Like these issues are really important to me, my community. And if you were to even see a research paper on it, you would not even pick it up. Imagine what else you would not even pick up or not tune into or what you're already not tuning into. And so feeling definitely dismissed, feeling, um, yeah, I've also felt like I think the impact for me is um, also feelings of like our fear of violence. And we talked about violence already, but for me, I have undergone um, a lot of verbal violence, like a lot of violence, verbal threats, berating, 
um, and threats of physical violence. I activate with other people um, that have undergone threats of physical violence, like bomb threats or like actually like murdering them or their children or whatever. And for me, that that impact, like how how that resonates for me is like feeling unsafe. And it does, sometimes it doesn't matter where you go. You never know. Like I remember a story with one of my justice sisters. She was waiting outside of the train station. And a woman, while she was with her kids, just comes up and like is in her face, like verbally attacking her. And I've had a similar experience being in Penn Station of New York with a man coming up to me and just yelling in my face um, about how I was a disgrace and all of this stuff. Um, and so that's that impacts me, I think. Um, and it's an aversion because I end up being scared. And I think that what that could have done or could do, and sometimes it does do, is it reduces behavior that's relevant to equity and justice, like the behaviors that I could engage in that um, might help me to try to move that needle forward, it could reduce some of those things. So like speaking up, like my voice and like being fearful of saying anything or doing anything that's related to justice because other people are so invested in not seeing that happen. Our other people are invested in continuing the status quo. And um, so those are some of the impacts that I felt and that I still have to deal with, like, as I continue on in this journey of activism. But definitely, um, as I continue on <laughs> in behavior analysis, because I'm fearful that I have to, in my head, and like my um, sociology teacher tried to teach me is that this wasn't just this campus. And so recognizing that it's a larger world issue. And so I think that brings my fear for behavior analysis because we're not on an island. We've all been impacted by this right. stuff. So if these things are happening outside of this field, knowing that it could happen in our field, but also even experiencing like feelings of dismissal or whatever, knowing that the, these things already exist. And I might encounter some of these people on this journey too. So yeah. One, one thing you mentioned was kind of the generalization of, uh, you know, the, the responses that you had that have now been conditioned fear responses that go into other environments or with <laughs> other people. You know, we talk about like uh, bias and how, how that happens, um, you know, and we try to guard against that. But, um, you know, when I was pretty young, um, you know, I've kind of always lived in the country. <laughs> and so uh, there's like the, the stereotypical like country boy truck with the Confederate flag and all that stuff. You know, you can you've seen it in movies, you can picture it. But I was um, kind of run down by one of those. And um, there was a sticker on the back of my car that said love is love. And it was like a rainbow or something like that. Um, and they pulled off to the side of the car, like kind of like drove up behind me and went around to the side and then were, you know, um, using derogatory names and stuff like that. And so, you know, just to talk about the consequences of that, whether you want to think of that experience the next time you see that same kind of car or the next time you're driving down that same kind of country road or something like that. And then it's, mm -hmm. it does, it starts to change your behavior. 
you know, what do I do? Um, and now I have to live in this state of almost panic at times. Um, it changes how I act. It changes um, what environments I will go into uh, or what choices I will make um, in terms of um, like public displays of affection or something like that. Uh, maybe the clothes that I wear or behaviors that I exhibit. Um, I, I said the other day, uh, I was talking about bathrooms. And for me, like bathrooms are kind of a, bi a, a big thing because that's I always feel uncomfortable no matter what. And so I didn't realize it, but um, for the longest time, whenever I would go into a bathroom, I would make sure that I greeted people that I saw, if it was appropriate, obviously, um, but I would use a higher pitched voice so they know I was a female or I'd accentuate parts of my body that made me look female so they would know that I belong there. Because in the past, I would have gotten weird, dirty looks. People would have looked me up and down. I've had people back out of the bathroom to look at the sign to make sure they're in the right restroom. And so because of that, my behavior is changing. And then that started mm -hmm. to generalize every single time to almost where it is unconscious. You know, and we talk about privilege and we, you know, when you can walk into a bathroom or you can walk into a train station without that fear of, of, um, violence essentially, then, um, that's, that's privilege. You know, most mm -hmm. people don't recognize that because they, they, they've never felt uncomfortable, you know? Mm. Yeah. Or they felt uncomfortable, but in a, in a different, in a different sense. Context, yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Just, you know, what it's like to just walk outside of your house in the morning and, have that fear like some people don't have to experience that um and that is a privilege um to walk down the street in your neighborhood or to go into a bathroom in a public setting like th these are privileges that some folks never will never have to experience in that way yeah or for these reasons um so we've kind of talked a lot about our fears but i do want <laughs> i feel like you know they're that's okay. Um, and we wanted to be personal today. And I know that I'm not finished talking about my fears. I probably have way more that I can discuss. Um, actually, I do have way more that I can discuss. Um, but I think doing this thing, this show thing, this ABA and social justice thing together is definitely scary for me. Um, I don't know if you feel the same way, well, I think you do because you actually mentioned it earlier. So, did. Um, what are some what are some things that have not been said so far that terrify you to go down this path? Um, I think I had identified the feeling inadequate. Mm -hmm. Like I don't have, like even. Um, I've acknowledged to myself, even like sitting here with you, like I look and I'm like, oh my gosh, you have all this language, all this knowledge. Like I have experiences. I know, I know you're looking at me like that, but it's, <laughs> it's seriously like those are things that show up though. It's like that somebody's going to be like, who is this person? You know, that, that like, yeah, they've experienced this, but what right do they have to, to, to speak to this topic? And it's not that that it's a story that's in my head. You know, we talk about stories that come up in our head that, that then change our behavior. But, um, you know, and then the fear that, uh, will people even listen? You mm -hmm. know, um, I try to stay off of social media or look how many times people have listened to this or, uh, you know, stuff like that. But, um, I think that's, that. I know how powerful this could be. I know 
we've gotten a lot of good feedback after the first episode and I know that that it is but it's I think my fear is do people have the same value in change or are they comfortable enough to be like yo your podcast awesome and then go about their day kind of thing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you look like you had something you were gonna say no, I just was relating to that. Uh, I was okay. relating to all that. And, you know, I laughed when you said, you have all this language. And I'm like, that's the biggest fear that I have. That like, I'm getting this wrong. Like, <laughs> that I don't have the language. I have the language based on my past experience working in the yes. social justice sphere. But is that good enough for behavior analysts? And that is one of my fears in what did it's, I tell you the other day? Hang on. Let me think of the metaphor that I thought about the other day. I think a lot in metaphors. I've learned that about myself. What did I say? Okay. So in behavior analysis, we have um, very steep roots in autism treatment, right? Like that's what everybody thinks. I teach in universities. And when people come in, I say, what do you want to do with behavior analysis? And they say, I want to work with kids with autism. And I'm like, that's fantastic. But can we like, I'm going to give you some suggestions. Just bear with me, you know, mm -hmm. and all term long, I'll be talking different examples, like within the medical field or within the social justice or within, um, oh gosh, what was the other one the other day? I can't remember off the top of my head. I don't know, but whatever that is. And I said, what, what you're doing with like the presentations is you're, you're paving a new road. And so when you, you look at that, you're paving a new road to connect to another field that's not there. Or if it is, it's kind of like this, like, dirt, gravel, kind of like maybe matted down grass kind of like road, right? Um, and and so in making that a clear line, like behavior analysis has to autism services, that comes with years. It comes with um, a lot of mess ups, I think, and a lot of leeway because there was a lot of leeway in the beginning for those people, right? Mm -hmm. To say things. And now we can go back and those are the people that, that we follow. But it's like, let's look at their language. Like the and I'm sure they were talking to their colleagues and using terms that, that didn't stick, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't know if you wanted to speak to that, but I was like, paving roads, like, have you ever seen anybody pave a road? Like, it's messy. Yeah. All the yeah. all the construction equipment, it doesn't, it's not easy. It's not fast. It's a lot of hard work and it's messy, you know? Yeah, I needed that. I needed that in that moment too. <laughs> I mean, you know, um, but I really did. I've I've been taking that with me for the past couple of days and like, it's okay if if I do get it wrong. Like I have always been here to try to create or to help other people become change agents. And so if you are moved by anything that I say, any presentation you sat in on in whatever way, like I don't even care if you're so upset that I got something wrong. If you're that upset that I got something wrong and it and it actually inspires you to find the right way to do it or a better way to do it then that's a win because this isn't about me. Like the work that I do is not about, it's not about ego. It's low ego, high impact. So if we can actually impact our field, impact the world using the science, then we won in some way. And so I definitely needed you to give me that metaphor. And I thank you for being there in that moment of, oh my God, what is this? Right. Um, but that's yeah. the power, but that's the power of check-ins too. Cause you did that with me too over the weekend, like a couple of days, or maybe it was earlier this week, and you're like, How are you doing? And and I, you know, you gave me permission to not be okay and to to never be okay, essentially. And I think that that was um that like hit me at my core and I was like, Oh, I I don't have to like force myself to get over this. 
and giving permission in that moment, I think like maybe my metaphor was powerful for you, that you giving me permission was powerful for me. So, and I, we both come from that understanding, right? Mm -hmm. That, that, that other people may not have in that perspective, but, yeah. um, but those, I mean, those fears, those things that we carry are, could be debilitating if we did not attach them to values, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, I, I do have a few other fears that I, I definitely, I think I want to get them out the way on this show. So if we go a little over, it's probably because I'm like, I really just feel the need to say it now. So I don't have to ever say it again. I think. Bring it on. Um, I do not want to be behavior analysis well-spoken token. I don't want to be a token in general. I don't want the white folks in our field to prop me up as this one black woman that we have that is doing work. Um, I don't want to be that. I do want to be able to do the work, but I don't want to be the only one that's able to do this work. So what that means is if you find things that I say or that I will say helpful to also Hear that from the people that you work with that look like me to allow them to speak and use their voices. Because when we start getting into tokenization, it's like this one person and it's like, yeah, we, we have this. Yep. Denisha, social justice, diversity, no one else. And so I don't want to, I don't yes. want to be that. I don't oh, want to yeah. be that. Um, and so that's a fear of mine. And I, and I want people to like push past, um, you know, that understanding of like whose voice that we will listen to. And and I think that gets me to like my next fear is I'm not always well-spoken. I'm not. Like I think in, in general, I'm well-spoken, um, but I'm not like, there's definitely a, a difference in the way that I speak versus the way that other people will speak or do speak already. And um Part of me knowing that about myself, um, the code switching thing that happens for me, I think by time that I, by the time I realized how easy it is for me to code switch, it was like, oh, it's too late. Like, <laughs> you know, but I had to be intentional and I am intentional about switching that back off when I, when it feels comfortable for me. And so there will be times where I speak very relaxed in a way that's a way that's very similar to how I would speak with my friends or anybody that's from my community. And when I do that, there are going to be people that don't look like me that have a problem with that. And there are going to be people that do look like me that have um, an issue with that. And that's just, and I might not be using the, the right word when I say this, but like there's a cultural linguistic difference here. And it might have to do with where I'm from versus where they are from. Um, and it might also have to do with internalizing the messaging, internalized oppression. And so um, with that, there might come ex ex expectations of people who uh, also look like me for me to fit into this mold as well. And I'm not, I don't want to say that. I don't, I want to make a caveat be to say that I'm not blaming those in my community who take this approach. So like, if you hear me say something with two double negatives, or I do my little head snap and a finger roll, if you hear any of that and you feel like I'm, you know, letting people down that look like me, um, I'm not blaming you for feeling that because, we have to remember that internalized oppression is the result of pervasive external racism and sexism. And the locus of analysis should be on that broader social and political and cultural context that oppressive forces of racism and sexism have created. And it's not the individual. And so that was a quote. Um, 
and I'll put that uh, author in my sh in the show notes, but I recognize that. I recognize that when there are people who expect me to present a certain way that look like me or expect others to present a certain way that look like us to be well put together, you're not, you didn't get that from anywhere. So that's not your fault. But if you hear me talk very relaxed and loose how I want to speak, then know that I'm going to continue to. And um, behavior analysis is for everybody. Like this is about behavior. And so when I feel comfortable to speak how I speak with my family or my friends, um, then who are we allowing to join in our spaces for them to be themselves right. as well? Because this isn't about the folks who were able to be educated, quote unquote, educated enough to change their diction to fit in to the larger society. If we think that our science impacts everyone, then everyone has stake in this science. Right. That's so. powerful. That's powerful. No. Um, so I, I was kind of having a similar conversation where it was like, I'm afraid I'm going to use some mentalistic term, you know, and it's, um, it's not going to be taken well because it's not behavioral terms, you know, uh, mm -hmm. because you're being relaxed because you don't have language for that yet. But I love how you're saying like being yourself, like that's, that's who you should be. That's who you should be, allow be allowed to be. Um, so I have been reading a, the book called The Hate You Give. Mm -hmm. Have you, do you have yeah. you read that? Yeah. Yep. And um, so if, if you all get a chance, I'm listening to it. I'm not reading, lie, but I'm, I'm listening to it. But I just got to the part um, where she's describing her behavior. So black girl in a white private school, right? Um, and she's saying that, like essentially saying this is the white version of me because if I act this way, it comes off this way. If I use two double negatives or I use that, it makes me look uneducated. If, um, you know, when I use slang, it makes me look gangster. When white girls use slang, it makes them look cool. So I mm -hmm. can't use it. Um, and that hit me really hard because it reminded me I li that, that ha I came across that part yesterday and it reminded me of a lot of what we're going to talk about, um, you know, in this episode and how you have to shift yourself to be presentable in a, a certain context, because that's how other people think that you should behave yeah. because those other people are a large majority, <laughs> you know, and that's what they're comfortable with, you know? Right. Exactly. So, and I think part of that, I, for me, I, like I said, it took me a while to like even realize that, like, oh, you, you code switch. Like, where did this come from? Because, oh, you went to college and you learned mm -hmm. the way, like, to speak in front of others. Like, there was a specific way of speaking that was reinforced by this this setting or this group of people. Um, and I didn't have to do that at home. So it became like very natural. And if it wasn't for a colleague that I had, that is, you know, still somebody that I talk to all the time, she was, it's always like one or two of us in a setting. Like I've never worked with like a plethora of people of color. It's always just one or two of us. So this was the, uh, the other one of us <laughs> in this organization. And she was just very, you know, she had already done some of that work in recognizing the shift 
And we were just having a conversation. She wasn't even approaching me like, you don't have to do this, girl. It was just more so we were just having this conversation. And we got, we had conversations about social justice all the time. But she brought up code switch. And I was like, you know what? I didn't even realize. <laughs> I didn't even realize that this had got too easy for me. And it's fluent. like, yeah. yeah, I became very fluent in the code switch. And like, I would leave work and just take off this mask. And so I said it before on another show. I was like, when I just, you have to keep moving. I think about other folks in points of history. Um, and Harriet Tubman is coming to mind for me when she, you know, moved throughout trying to free enslaved people. There are people that said, no, we're going to stay behind. No, we can't go with you. Um, and so you're going to always have those type of people that are not going to be willing to go with you. But Harriet moved forward because she, there was something that she believed in, which was freedom um, for people. And so, yeah. I mean, I'm relatively new to all this stuff. And I, I don't think I've I've necessarily gotten pushback about anything I've, I've done specifically. Um, but what I have contacted are people of uh, within my quote unquote group maybe like revolving around gender or something like that, that have made choices to, um, to not live like the authentic, like it, it, in the authentic way, like very out way mm -hmm. that I have too. And, and um, to kind of sit in that space and to hear, like, I could see how it could easily be like, well, what are you talking about? Like, this is what we're fighting for. This is what we're, if you're not, if you're not going to come out you're not going to do the hard things, then, um, then it, whatever thoughts might come to people's mind, but it's like to be able to sit and to listen and to hear them explain, okay, this is, this is why it might not be safe for them. It might not, you know, there are all these things that are kind of showing up for me that, that I've experienced, but I know there are people who, who aren't willing to, to have that, I guess you go back to like flexibility in terms of like what you should be doing and what you shouldn't be doing. And, um, and it's hard for people to, to hear that. Yeah, I think you're speaking to, like, I'm going back to privilege now because I'm mm -hmm. sitting listening to you and thinking about the kids on my unit and we get a fair proportion of um, trans kids and non-binary kids on our unit. And, you know, one of my kids was in an, a situation with a staff member a while ago where the staff member, I guess, was inviting them to just be out um, and the, my young person was just not, was really uncomfortable with being put on the spot. I think it was a misunderstanding, but at some point they were really upset by that and we, we worked through it. And I'm listening to you and thinking, you know, I agree, that's not safe. It's not, it's not uh, necessarily their job to do that right there and then. It's not their fight to fight in that moment. But, you know, I felt, but my privilege <laughs> and my position allows me to do that, to model for those kids and to um, step outside my internalized stuff. So I struggled for a long time. I didn't even notice at first, but then I struggled for a long time with, for example, having a picture of my partner in my office and having my rainbow stuff and my trans stuff and all my Black Lives Matter and whatever else in my office. Um, and didn't do it and I didn't out myself at work I never talked about my partner and working with these kids I'm just like I got I cannot do this anymore I need to do this for them I'm in a privileged position of an adult being an adult where I can model for them 
it might make other people uncomfortable, but what am I hiding from? I'm really hiding from my own shame, my own fears. And I can't, I need these young people to at least see that they can choose, that there is other people who are, you know, if they're not able to be in a position of power, privilege, or be able to, you know, be out to their family or on the unit or whatever it is, they can see me doing it. I don't know if that's making any sense, but I was just like, I can't, I need to do this for them. Like that was just so important to me. Um, no, it makes a lot of sense. And too, I think like the last show that we had Megan Kirby on, she was talking about uh, behavior analysts being political and should we be political or not? And so you're not only being a model for like your clients and uh, the kids that you're working with, but also for other behavior analysts in terms of like doing social justice work too. Um, and that's a privilege that, that all three of us, you know, have is to be in a position where we can do that where we're not at risk of losing our job if we decide to speak up or something mm -hmm. like that where mm -hmm. it's actually um at least my my job encourages me to do stuff mm -hmm. like this um so but yeah i think privileges uh, that definitely comes to mind when you say that for sure so, so using or using your privilege that's what i mean like using mm -hmm. your privilege to help move the move the field forward or move the world forward or move like you know just move my unit forward um and create a safer space for the kids and a more diverse space and more of the space that i want to be it you know mm -hmm. um yeah can we talk more like um so i really do feel like there's obviously there there's power in the folks who um are from the specific communities um themselves but then there's also power in those who hold privilege and then decide to use their privilege in order to make the space better for them, for other people. Because if you already are from a marginalized group, whatever that group might be, you already are, you know, showing up in the world with a lot more um, labor put upon you than you should have to. And to have, you know, privilege and then be able to use that privilege, speak up um, and, and notice that when you're speaking up that you're not speaking for, right? Like you'll never be able to speak for mm -hmm. these people or for mm -hmm. this group, but I am speaking up in solidarity with, and then hopefully with you speaking up that one, you are making that environment safer for these folks. But then when you do speak up that hopefully you're also fueling other individuals who who might have felt like they wanted to speak up for themselves but just couldn't but to even just know that there's somebody else in this environment that might get it um and because they've already helped to kind of put this out now I'm I'm comfortable with saying this or now they've done this and I don't have to like I don't have to exhibit or um, emit more labor um because this person who holds the privilege that has probably a lesser likelihood of um, having ramifications for speaking up, you know, they've done that for me. And so realizing that, that that's there. Um, and this is happening in our workplaces every single day. Like, you know, I, I think a lot of times where we start to think like, you know, behavior analysts, we don't really, we have all the answers, right? Cause we know how behavior works, but mm -hmm. all the stuff that's happening outside of behavior 
um, analysis is, is happening inside. And so if you're at your organization, I can guarantee you there are individuals from marginalized groups that are feeling like their voices are not being heard, that they're not given a fair shake, that they can't be who they are at work, that they can't speak how they want to speak at work without fear of being, you know, typecasted or whatever. And so just kind of like noticing other people around you um, and then using that to to just I'm losing a word, but just like speaking up and just know and saying that, hey, we're we might just be um, missing the mark here or, you know, and and there's something more that we can do to allow this um, agency, this organization to feel a little bit more comfortable because it really doesn't matter if you say, you know, we have diversity and I can look at, you know, the folks that are um, on our website and say, oh, look, there are these few people of color. Oh, look, there's this non-binary person here. Oh, look, there is this, um, these women over here. And then they show up to work and they're having to kind of do the same thing, you know, all the, all the good spots at the job are going to all the, the men in the room, they're being paid more. Um, the, um, minorities are not being able to speak up for the microaggressions that they experience. It's like, who cares that you're showing us that you have this diverse workplace? It's not really diverse if you actually take it apart. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's the powerful part about privilege. Is that my third rant? Yes, it is. It's all right. We've all been ranting. We're gonna. I'm gonna start tallying. <laughs> you should tally them all. <laughs> no, I equate that to like slapping a safe space sticker on like the door, and then you walk in, and nothing has changed yeah. on the inside. You know, yeah. right? Um, so, and I see that happen quite often. So. I, I I'm thinking about 